Tonight, the cancer medication shortage putting the lives of over 100,000 patients at risk. How doctors are treating this life or death crisis. Then, NYC Pride March Grand Marshal Randy Wicker on his decades-long struggle for LGBTQIA rights and where the movement is headed next. That, as MetroFocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. Drug shortages have been making medications of all kinds difficult to get, but now vital chemotherapy drugs for cancer patients are also in short supply. And that is leaving hospitals and doctors with difficult decisions about how to treat their patients, including the possibility of delaying treatment and rationing doses in some cases. In New York, as in other states, these kinds of shortages of essential cancer drugs are taking a toll on patients and their physicians. For a look at what's behind the shortages, how doctors and their patients are coping, and what might be done to correct the problem, we turn to Dr. Amanda Nichols-Fader. She is a professor of gynecology and obstetrics at Johns Hopkins Hospital and also the president-elect of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology. Doctor, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. So let's start off with, with a couple of big picture questions and then we'll get to some more specifics here. So to set the stage for the conversation, give us a sense of just how widespread these shortages are. Absolutely. So to put things into perspective, uh, the issue of drug shortages in the U.S. is a chronic problem that has existed for more than a decade and, and specifically to prescription generic uh, injectable drug shortages. Uh, however, uh, what we know that drug shortages can occur for a variety of reasons, whether uh, you know manufacturing or labor issues, quality control issues, inability to secure raw materials, among other things. What's particularly problematic, though, that's happening in the current era is that we're seeing an increase year after year in the number of drugs that are undergoing shortage. And in my field in oncology, uh, for life-saving chemotherapy drugs, we're seeing that uh, this class of agents is often in the top five of drugs that are in consistent shortage in the United States. And as of this week, the, both the FDA and um, the American Society of Hospital Pharmacists report that we have 15 indispensable chemotherapy drugs that are currently in shortage. We know that uh, based on national surveys that have been conducted of oncologists and hospital systems, both from the Society of Gynecologic Oncology and the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, which is an alliance of academic cancer centers across the US, that this is a serious nationwide problem. With our Society of Human Oncology survey, we found that oncologists in, in more than 40 states and in, in Washington, DC, reported shortage of at least one or more of these drugs at their institute 
institutions. And the National Conference of Cancer Network survey suggests that for those institutions that responded, 93% were reporting um, a shortage of at least one of these critical chemotherapy drugs. I suspect that for most people, this sounds completely counterintuitive. Most people, again, I suspect, and I was one of them, would think, well, if you're talking about life-saving drugs, they are, are going to be our priority. They're, those are not going to be the ones where we're going to experience shortages. So explain to us why then, given this counterintuitive nature, why then are these drugs that are so, so integral to saving lives, why are we seeing shortages of them? It's an excellent question, Jack. And these are among the most important medicines and the most important tools we use as oncologists to save and extend lives. And the, the particular drugs that are in shortage are actually used in more than 100 different standard of care treatment regimens for, for adults and children with many different cancers from gynecologic cancers like I treat uterine, cervix, ovarian, breast, lung, prostate, testicular cancers, leukemia, bladder, esophageal, the list goes on and on. And so it is, an, it is a public healthcare crisis. And one of the reasons for that is that the uh, most chemotherapy drugs uh, that are in shortage are uh, generic formulations. And generic formulations uh, are manufactured often by very few companies. And so there's a lot of market instability right now with the manufacturing of these drugs. Um, one of the reasons for that is that generic drugs um, don't bring in a lot of revenue for manufacturing companies and, and other facilities. And so uh, it's difficult for these organizations to invest in, uh, in production of the drugs because they don't generate much revenue for the companies. But the second um, reason is that there is a lot of market consolidation that has occurred likely because of the, the poor revenue stream. And so you have very few companies around the world, sometimes only one or two companies that produce the raw materials that are needed as the active ingredients in these drugs or one or two or three uh, you know, companies that are the primary manufacturers of the leading life-saving cytotoxic generic chemotherapy drugs that we use to help treat patients every day. I wanna get in a couple of minutes to this question of, okay, what do we do about all this, including raising awareness? But let's focus a little bit now on some more specifics. So uh, we're talking about these dramatic shortages how are doctors then responding to this in terms of their day-to-day -day care and treatment of patients? Well, I can tell you, Jack, that this is devastating for oncologists because we live to help our patients live better, longer lives and to, to not have access to some of the most important medicines we use to help patients with that is just unacceptable. And it's even more devastating for, for patients, of course, who this is very high stakes for them. However, there's a number of um, strategies that we're using on the oncology side um, that I can talk about. And uh, one of the initiatives I've been involved with at the Society of Gynecologic Oncology and that other societies included the Foundation for Women's Cancer, the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the Gynecologic Oncology Foundation are all working together to develop um, mitigation strategies. And so some of the things we're doing across the country and all oncology pharmacies right now is we're looking at opportunities to preserve the drug supply we have and get more mileage out of it for more patients. We're using uh, special pharmacy techniques that allow us to uh, not waste a single drop of chemotherapy and use those drugs as responsibly 
as possible across the most patients possible. And in order to do that, some of the things required include uh, things like rounding the chemotherapy vials down to the nearest dose size or using multiple vials uh, in the treatment of multiple patients. So if you have just a few drops of chemotherapy left in one vial, instead of tossing it, you can use some of that and add it to the next vial to treat the next patient and so on and so on. And so these are really critical strategies that oncology pharmacies and oncologists are, are using at this time. But we're also developing alternative drug guidelines and we're using best available evidence from rigorous clinical trials in order to develop recommendations for oncologists so that if one or more of these critical drugs isn't available and there isn't a fantastic substitution available, we are creating new, new drug guidelines that um, will enable our physicians and healthcare providers to take care of patients in the best possible way with other standard of care drugs. And in many cases, the alternative substitutions that, that are being recommended will be just as effective as the standard of care drugs that are in shortage, but they have trade-offs. They may have much more toxicity or side effects than, than the, the drugs that are in shortage, sometimes permanent side effects. And so we need to be thinking you know, about that for, with our patients and that this is only a, you know, a temporary strategy. You, you mentioned uh, how precarious the situation is, and I was going to ask you about what are the consequences for patients, and I think you've, you've talked a lot about that right now. But let's talk now about consequences for physicians. And, and, I'll, and this is sort of a personal question. Um, this is what you do. I mentioned to you beforehand that, that this piece came about because I was having a conversation a few days ago with, with my daughter, Dr. Ashley Haggerty, who's been on um, this program before, who had recommended that I reach out for you. And, and, and she's a gynoc at Hackensack Meridian Riverview Medical Center. And she was, maybe anguish is a too strong a word, but she was certainly deeply concerned about this. And I know you are too. So what are you suggesting to physicians, especially through the organization, the Society of, of uh, Gynecologic Oncology? What are you saying to your members about how they handle this, both professionally and personally? Thank you, Jack, for asking that question. Uh, while our patients are our singular focus, you know, their health and well-being is is what we're extremely passionate about. And I know for Dr. Haggerty Ford, it's, it, Ford Haggerty, excuse me, the same same thing. You know, we are we're devastated, but we are also taking action, and um, we are creating better opportunities for patients during this strategy than we could have ever imagined, but also uh, on top of um, hosting multiple educational webinars for our members to uh, help them not only with developing oncology policies at their institutions, putting them in contact with foundations that might be able to help them get access to drug if the if the manufacturers or group purchasing organizations that they contract with at their institutions don't have drug available. Um, but we're also uh, providing education and supportive services for our members uh, through uh, webinars about how to have difficult conversations with patients, how to support your own wellness uh, during this time and having conversations no oncologist ever would want to have with a patient. Um, and we've pr provided a, a, a a private forum for our oncologists to talk about, you know, what what what's going on, what what what's going on at the ground on the ground at their institutions, and how can we best support them in that. 
Similarly, um, the advocacy arm of the Society of Juvenile Oncology, the Foundation for Women's Cancer, which is led by Dr. Ginger Gardner, a New York-based uh, oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, um, is working on the patient advocacy side. How do we support our patients through this? How do we get the word out to them and help them um, also get, get access to drug, work with their local oncologists um, to, to, to receive best care? And we also have an, um, an open survey that we've submitted across patient advocates um, in the U.S. to understand what's what their feelings and 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 uh, and thoughts are about what's happening and how they can come to the table with us as we're doing the third piece is the advocacy piece and the advocacy piece is with the FDA directly with um, with uh, Capitol Hill legislators and with. Uh, drug manufacturers and group purchasing organizations. We as oncologists want to have a seat at this table to develop long-term solutions so that this never happens again. This is this is not sustainable for this to keep happening and lives are going to be affected uh, if we don't get a handle on this quickly, but also not just mitigate short-term, but look at long-term solutions as well. Got less than a minute left here. You talked about what's being done now to uh, to prevent this from happening in the future. Real quickly, are you optimistic that in the short term we are making some progress in terms of of making these drugs more available at the level that they should be? Thank you for that question. I am cautiously optimistic that we're starting to move in the right direction in the short term. We still have a number of healthcare systems and patients across the country that are affected by the drug shortages, but drug supply of the key uh, chemotherapy drugs that are in short supply are starting to trickle in. Uh, some of the manufacturers that went offline due to quality control issues, which is one of the leading causes of this current drug shortage, are now back online. And the FDA is working diligently on this for what they can control, um, including uh, exploring um, and identifying sources of uh, chemotherapy overseas for, for importation to the US for, US for emergency use. And that's gonna be happening for at least one or two of the drugs that are in shortage. Well, Dr. Amanda Nichols-Fader, thank you so much. Very informative, helping us to understand the aspects of this very critical issue and, and the progress hopefully we're going to be making in the future. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. And again, uh, for all the good work that you have been doing for your patients and the organization. Look forward to talking with you um, perhaps soon to see how this is all working out. Thanks again. You take care. Thanks, Jack. Thank you. The countdown is on for this year's Pride Weekend and the annual NYC Pride March. The event is a highlight of the New York City calendar, a celebration of the diversity of the LGBTQIA community, and also of New York's activists' central role in the decades-long and ongoing movement for equal rights. That aspect of the march has particular weight this year, given the increasing violence against LGBTQ people and the record number of bills in state houses across the country targeting their rights, especially those of transgender youth. To drive home that point, the theme to this year's NYC Pride is strength in solidarity, and the organizers have chosen five grand marshals who embody the diversity of the community. Among them is Randy Wicker, a true trailblazer in the movement for gay rights and gay liberation dating back to the early 1960s. 1962, he organized the first radio broadcast where homosexuals spoke for themselves on WBAI. In 1964, he led the first public protest against anti-gay discrimination. And in 1966, he participated in the sip-in demonstration at a bar to bring greater awareness to New York laws preventing bartenders from serving 
LGBTQ plus people. That was just the beginning of a career in radical activism that continues strong to this very day. Joining us now to talk about that career, about the current climate and the upcoming parade is activist, author, and archivist, Randy Wicker. Randy, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to meet you. It's really, really a pleasure to be here. I just Good. have one correction. Yes, go right ahead. I started in 1958. I've been in the movement for four years by the time I broke into radio and television. Well, you know what? That's a perfect segue because my first question to you is going to be looking back now all those years, what was it that caused you to say this is something that you felt you needed to get actively involved with all the way back in the 1950s? Because when I came out, uh, we were criminals in every state. And whatever you saw, you didn't see any representation of gay people on the new on TV or radio or anywhere, except maybe criminals, burgers and Malayan running to Russia who were traitors. So all homosexuals were traitors, or Leopold and Loeb who killed a kid for fun. So we were all thrill killers. Psychiatric profession said we were all sick. So we were by definition sick. We were sinners by almost mo almost every standard, except for possibly the Quakers. And it was just ridiculous because when I finally found gay life, I discovered here are these bars, all these boys going to Brown, just graduated from Columbia, you know, young people, average looking like me. We weren't screaming queen if you weren't running around in drag outfits and all that. And yet I turned on TV and you would hear people on the radio to the extent they talked about the sickness of homosexuality. It was all about, well, you know, psychiatrists are in the business of curing mental illness. And so they would be on there talking about, oh, we can help, we can save your poor kid. You know, if he's gay, if he's a homosexual, uh, we can straighten him out and get him on the right path with just six sessions. You know, so much per session. And of course, if it didn't work, they just tell you you needed six more sessions. There was yeah. no discussion about whether or not they were possibly curable or not. In 1962, I right. was so way they had a panel like that on WBAI, which was a subscriber supported, supposedly liberal station here in New York. And I went up and said, wait a minute. We homosexuals, we live the life. We're the authorities on homosexuality. You're actually facilitating fraud, putting on these psychiatrists that are claiming they can change a homosexual in so many sessions. And they were open to the idea. They said, get me a power. Let me ask him. Let me ask you about that. Let me ask you about that. Because again, it, it's a, a dramatically different time. And I'm sure there are people who are part of, of the movement now who might not even know about the fact that, that social activity amongst gay people was criminalized in so many states. So you go to the radio people and you say, give us a chance to talk, to explain things. What, what, what was their reaction? Did you get pushback from them initially? No, they listened because they had never seen somebody, you know, wearing a coat and tie, black suit, you know, saying, you know, we are the, we're authorities on our own thing. So Dick Elman at WBAI said, well, get me a panel together and I'll come up and do an interview. So I got a panel, mainly my friends, they were all young. It was an interracial couple. There was a bisexual. My Puerto Rican friend didn't show up, uh, but we had an hour and a half discussion and it was announced in the WBAI monthly bulletin about programs they were doing. And a week or two before 
the program itself, this Jack O'Brien, who was a really right-wing columnist in Journal American, came out with this article that said uh, this uh, that these they were putting perverts on the air and these sick and sad people. And one of the terms he was this six-man or something panel. We're going to discuss homosexual life and why. And what killed me of the the venom that dripped from that article. I mean, I just, I took it. It was the greatest PR piece I ever was handed. Because with this, this attack on me, I could go to the New York Times with my suit and tie, homosexual leg of New York card, hand it to a little old man. Little old man look up and say, does this card mean what it says? I said, what else would it mean? And right. he'd get on the phone and he'd say, so-and-so, the homosexual in New York is here to right. see. And there was a report. So that was your that was your calling card to get that people in. Here's a, a respectable looking so right? a respectable looking individual with a calling card. Hey, let me ask you, Randy. So scandal, what was the, a scandal review in his hand to show to the reporter that yeah. we that I really am somebody that I yeah. am on the air speaking as a homosexual with other homosexuals, which had never been done before. And what was the public reaction, Randy? What was the public oh, reaction to that radio program? The most famous show. Yeah. If it, because it it became the most watched show, uh, it got a rate. I ended up with a rate review by Jack Gould, noted columnist in the New York Times, two stories in the New York Times, a full page in Newsweek called Minority Listening. But the best thing that happened were the a religious conservative group, like the days of running things in Florida, went to the Federal Communications Commission and said, you should revoke the license at WBAI, they are putting perverts on the air. And the Federal Communications Commission issued a ruling when they tried to, can to appeal to cancel BAI's license that said homosexuality was a legitimate subject for public discussion on the airways. And that opened the door to radio and ultimately television and suddenly all the TV and radio stations that were afraid to even touch the subject were calling Mattachine wanting to have a homosexual go on the air. Yeah. Well, so you, you, you broke down the door in a lot of ways, not just you personally going through the door, but coming up and getting it on, on the air. And let me ask you about another thing that I said in the introduction. And this may well be something and that people just don't understand was taking place at the time. And I mentioned you're being part of the, the protest um, at a bar that focused on rules that prevented bartenders from serving gay people. Explain that to us and how that happened. Well, every I was a member of the Manichine Society of New York, which was a conservative gay liberation group that was started by Harry Hay in Los Angeles in 1950. There's a whole 20-year history before Stonewall. 1969. And in those days, it was illegal by the bar regulations to allow homosexuals to gather on your premises or to be served drinks. So that meant that every bar that every gay bar was run by the mob. They had to pay off the police to operate. And uh, so if I went in there with Manishing literature or anything, they said, you can't give that in here. Get it away from him until they tried to throw me out. Nobody was interested in the Manichine literature because for some reason people had the idea we don't want people to know we homosexuals look like normal people. As long as they think we all look like 
we all wear mascara and have high-pitched voices and run around looking very obvious. You know, we're safe because we look normal. And so we had finally to, I was the only person that could really go on TV and radio because most of the other, I was the 16th member of Mattachine, there were other people that were intelligent, articulate, probably better informed than me in many ways, but they had corporate jobs. And in those days, there were no protections at all. You're, you could be subject to being fired by your boss or corporation. You could be evicted from your apartment. If you were attacked on the street, it wasn't a hate crime. It was just a decent citizen beating up a dirty, filthy pervert. And that was literally the mentality that was going began in the 50s. And then we slowly changed that because once we got on the air, the question went from being, what can we do to cure the sickness of homosexuality? We started bringing up studies that showed that we were not mentally ill. And the question was becoming more and more, are they sick or aren't they sick? And the theological circles have started to becoming a question of, are they sinners or aren't they sinners? Mm -hmm. And so that started to begin to open the door, but it took 65 years from when I joined. I'm a 65 year veteran at this point. I began at the age of 20 and I'm now 85. Looking at, at what has taken place between back in the 1950s, when you first got involved, Right. And in today, and this is the last question. We've got about a, a minute and a half, about two minutes with you here for this. So when you look at what you have lived through, right? a lot of people have to look back on it historically. You've lived through it. Are you, as you sit here today, do you remain fearful about the, the, the human rights progress we've made? Or are you optimistic or maybe somewhere in between? I, th- I, I am optimistic. Because, you know, there's always backlash. And after backlash, it ends up with more education. It's just that recovery, we have so much more to do. And you know what the real key to is? I didn't have an answer when they asked me this at another station. What about trans people, what to do? Go on the internet. Because on the internet, people through the internet, trans people are able to meet one another education you can find more about trans people by watching their videos on youtube that's how trans people discover other lights themselves and that includes gay people as well in foreign countries they don't even dream that there's a place they see videos on youtube about gay pride events or about gay people talking about their lives and it gives them hope and that's the way to go forward is to keep hope alive because as long as you have un uncensored communication and a way to spread the message of hope love is more powerful than hate in my opinion and love will ultimately try you know triumph in this debate well i think randy wicker the the perfect way to wrap up this conversation is to stress this notion of hope as you have done we we talked about the fact that you have lived this history and you're you're such a wonderful repository of these memories and important aspects and important moments and what needs to be done in the future. Randy, thank you so much for spending some time with us. You take care of yourself and we'll look forward to talking again sometime soon. Sure. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. 
Also available at metrofocus.org, wliw.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.